So starting by bringing the attention into your body and, uh, you know, of course, our traditional posture is a sitting posture, but um, uh, these days, since people are often at home, they want to be a little more comfortable. You can meditate lying down. Just beware of the sleepiness that might overtake you if you're uh, too sleepy. Um, And you can close your eyes. Certainly there's nothing to look at on the screen, uh, nothing that you haven't seen before, uh, nothing entertaining. Um, And just beginning by bringing the attention into your body. Just feeling what it feels like to be in a body. We spend so much time in our heads In these difficult times, we can get so caught up in worries and stress and the trauma of it all that we lose touch with just the simplicity of the body and the breath. And this is also a time when we have to Watch out for the ways that our body gets activated, that we become anxious even unconsciously. So this practice can really be a great tool for releasing that stress, releasing that anxiety, just coming back to this moment We don't know what will happen in the future, but right now we're okay. So as we tune into the body, you might find points of tension that benefit from a intentional relaxation, so softening the belly, relaxing the jaw, releasing the shoulders. And so this all inclines toward a sense of groundedness We feel the weight of the body. We're being held up by the spine, but releasing any muscular tension. We can work with awareness of the body by noticing 
with different sensations in different parts of the body. And we can also bring an awareness to the whole body. So feeling the body as a single object. From that viewpoint, you can see that that single body has many different sensations. And those are the sensations of life. They are the things that let us know we are alive. This mystery of life. As far as we know, we didn't plan to be born. We didn't create our own bodies. And yet here we are. We tend to think of them as belonging to us, my body. And yet there's very little that I control in my body. I don't control how it looks. I don't control the breath or the heart, the blood. I don't control digestion. I don't control the nervous system. I exert control over my movements, but I don't know how to make that happen if I weren't given those capacities. And then I, I will die. And that's rarely a preference. But my body, my body, has a lifespan that is not under my control. The best I can do is be kind to this body. and to not blame myself for things that I don't like about it, for things that I can't control.
with awareness. I feel my body. I feel my mood, my emotions. What's going on on that more subtle level right now? What are you feeling? If there's nothing distracting in our physical sensations, our main focus is usually in how we feel and wanting to feel happy or emotionally comfortable. But just like the body, so much of this is not really in our control. Feelings come and go. As we practice meditation, we start to see how thoughts and feelings interact. And as we develop more mindfulness, start to have more of a role in letting go of the negative thoughts and feelings that arise and change our relationship to these things. But oftentimes there's a neglect of the felt experience as well. And this is where the addict often acts out. We act out of an unconscious resistance to what is showing up in our mood, in our mood and emotional state. And sometimes that resistance is conscious as well. but it can be a dangerous area for us. And, and sometimes we're afraid, afraid to feel, afraid of what might be there. And so we suppress. This practice of mindfulness can give us a safe way to feel, to hold those feelings as they arise to watch them, to allow them to come and go. One of the things that we can see is the interaction between the body and the mind between the sensations and the emotions, between the thoughts and the sensations and the whole cycle and interaction. So mindfulness gives us a different perspective. 
It helps us to feel and be present without identifying or getting caught, without necessarily believing the thoughts or feelings as being truthful or giving us information. We start to see the system of cause and effect, how things arise, how they end. And this is where serenity and wisdom start to develop. in this new relationship, this new way of being. We can connect to the breath now as our anchor into the present moment. The breath can act as a a way of interrupting thoughts, as a way of calming mind and body, and as a way of focusing the attention. Feeling the breath at the nostrils or the belly. At the nostrils, we perceive the touch of air coming in and out. You can examine this very closely. Be with it, with interest, curiosity. What does the breath actually feel like? If we follow the breath at the belly, we're with the movement, the rising and falling. and all that's involved in that. The way the ribs expand and contract. The lungs fill and empty. Perhaps feeling the touch of clothing on skin. And we start to investigate breath. We discover quite a lot. Not so simple. 
So the breath gives us this anchor and focus. And then when the mind wanders and we notice that we can come back to the breath again. But here we might see the effects of thought when we come back to the breath to feel, how does my body feel now? How did that thought affect my mind state? Am I contracted or anxious, sad? And again, breathing, breathing with those experiences. Letting the breath cleanse the heart and mind. All right, once again, welcome to Spirit Rock. Maybe I should say Spirit Rock-ish. Um, so it's um, uh, September 
uh, just occurred to me before I was getting ready to ring the bell that this is Mark's six months of doing it this way. It was March 13th was the first uh, Spirit Rock Zoom class that I taught. And, you know, it's fine and all, but it's okay if it's over soon. Thank you. And of, of course, it's also 9-11, which is, you know, another day that we mark in our history of grief and a, a marker of an historical turning point as well. But it's, it's also been po pointed out that every three days uh, right now, as many people, Americans are dying of COVID has died that day. And I was, you know, thinking today about how uh, as numbers get higher and higher, they just become abstract. And at a certain point, when it's 100,000 or 200,000, it, it just doesn't mean much anymore to us. We don't see it. And we don't see like planes flying into a building and buildings collapsing. So there's something we get numb to it. You know, I was reading last night um, that uh, in the 1918 pandemic, 675 million, 600, sorry, 675,000 Americans died, 21 million around the world. So as I say, I mean, they, you know, now we're almost at 200,000. What's, does, you know, it's hard for any of that to carry meaning for us or for us to, it's it's not even manageable for us to hold these things. Um, you know, where our nation is in the world, but our nation now is particularly in a, a state of trauma. And we, we uh, I, the other thing that occurred to me is that we, we desperately need a leader, you know. <laughs> uh, we, there used to be such things, but uh, we've allowed um, what's happened uh, to the environment uh, because because no one w was able to um, overcome our inertia and, and the power of greed and the power of delusion. This is not my Dharma talk, by the way. <laughs> I'll get to that. But I just thought, a, you know, a happy prelude to put everybody in the mood. No, I mean, I, I just think it's impossible. I, I, it's, not, it's not impossible, but I just doesn't feel like real to just pretend that uh, things are, are normal and okay. Um, but yes, we can survive and we can grow through this and, and, um, and learn, you know, this, uh, but, uh, you know, as people in recovery, we know that sometimes it takes a lot of suffering before we learn something. And I, I feel like maybe this summer, Moving into fall is like the time when when we had to really hit bottom around uh, racism, and and I hope we have, and that maybe we're hitting bottom around climate change, and maybe these are moments when when uh, we can turn when they can be historical moments of 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 change of real change, and that's that's what I uh, 
I guess I would say pray for, although I'm not sure literally that I pray for it, but I do, I do offer loving kindness uh, to all those things. And I am also making phone calls uh, <laughs> for the Pennsylvania Democratic Party. So uh, just FYI, like there are ways to actually be active and, I, and it's as hard as it is to sit there and say, hi, I'm calling for the Pennsylvania Democratic Party and have people hang up on me. I've even had one person swear at me, but I've also talked to people who said they would crawl to the polls, literally. Quite a few people have said they would crawl to the polls uh, no matter what it takes. So, um, you know, after that hour that I put in each week, I feel like I've at least done something. So if you're thinking about, you'd like to do something, you know, there's a lot of opportunities. So um, you can ask me about that. My daughter is a field organizer in Pennsylvania. So, um, okay, Dharma talk. It is, <laughs> it is September, which means we get to have step nine, everybody's favorite. And, and it's really interesting to, this is where, trying to do what I do, you know, Buddhism and the 12 steps uh, becomes a little tricky. There's very little reference to anything like making amends. There is one sutta I've found, and I'm sure there's some others, but there's one sutta in my bit of reading that I found that mentions amends. But even that mention is not the central point of the sutta. Um, and, uh, you know, I was... Uh, talking to another Dharma teacher friend recently who said, well, like in early Buddhism, there really isn't talk of like forgiveness because there's the understanding that if karma happens, there's, it's just, that's the result and you have to live with that. So you can't, you can't reverse it, which I think is, is important. And it's, it is something that I have said, about uh, making amends, that amends doesn't uh, change the karma, doesn't change the, what happened. But we know that it's incredibly powerful nonetheless. And, and I, want, I want to talk about that, but I, I want to talk about one other thing uh, that kind of relates to this in, in terms of karma. The famous story of Angulimala that, that I've uh, drawn on uh, fairly often in teaching. And, uh, and it's a story of this guy who sort of describes as a serial killer, but and it's a long story, which we won't go into tonight. But the Buddha uh, confronts him and kind of, he's, he's kind of like been almost like under the spell of an evil uh, person, an evil, like a supposed his teacher who told him to go kill people. It's, in any case, that when the Buddha kind of confronts him, he kind of snaps out of this spell and uh, and goes to the Buddha for refuge and becomes a monk. And uh, after he's a monk, uh, the the, um, the Buddha, there's a scene in which the Buddha sort of asks people, well, if you ever, if they, uh, he's there, Angulimala is there, but people don't know it's Angulimala. He says, you know, if, if Angulimala were, had become a monk, 
how would you treat him? They said, oh, well, then I, if he was a monk, we would just uh, give him robes and give him food and we would bow down out of respect. And so, and then he says, well, here he is. And people are like, whoa, what? And, but then he says, well, you just said that you would do that. So then the people, you know, they bow to him and, and are respectful of him. And so what that points to in Buddhism is the implicit power in ordaining as a, as a monk that if in a way it's, it, it sort of looks like at least on a temporal level, you've been forgiven. Uh, but later in this story, Angulimala also gets attacked by people and the Buddha says to him, well, that's your karma. Like, you know, if, if you hadn't become a monk, you would have to go through all kinds of hell realms. But as it is, you've become enlightened and you, you know, you're, you'll be okay long-term, <laughs> which, but, uh, you know, you still have to deal with the fact that people are pissed off at you that some people are really, because you killed their family members or whatever. Um, so, so it kind of points to what the idea of, of, uh, how that forgiveness doesn't mean that, you know, you don't have to still pay for your misdeeds, but there still, there is a way in which, um, you are lifted up by your commitment to a spiritual path that you are, that, that really the direction of your life changes. And, and so uh, I guess it kind of opens up and uh, karma is such a complicated topic. And, and the Buddha himself in the suttas says, you can't really unravel all the elements of karma. But what's really key about karma, and, and this I think will connect us back to step seven, is that it can only be affected in the present moment. You can't go back to the past and change your karma. You can't go out in the future and direct it to go a certain way. In this moment, you are creating karma. And, and every moment you are creating karma. And so this is one of the reasons why mindfulness is so important. Because when we're not paying attention, we're just doing stuff but we're creating karma. <laughs> and so if you're not paying attention, you might create not so good karma. So to me, the amends in the 12 steps, first of all, is about that moment. And it's about what happens in that moment of making amends. And I don't mean in terms of the result that, oh, somebody accepts it or they reject it or they embrace you or they kick you out of the house, but rather what happens to you internally. Because this is, you know, in my, my take on karma, which is somewhat outside the mainstream, <laughs> is that kind of what's most important about our karma is is our emotion, what I call our emotional karma. So what's it feel like when you make amends? And I, and I hope that uh, many of you have done that. Um, if you work the 12 steps, it's a really, really precious thing to do. And again, not because it fixes anything, but because it changes you. That's what's important about it. 
it gives you uh, a feeling of, it actually gives you a feeling of strength because the, the burden of the past of guilt and regret keeps us hiding, keeps us fearful, keeps us trying not to look, trying not to feel. And even as we know, it can even make us like avoid certain people, right? Uh, in a very practical level. But when we can stand up and say, yes, this is true, then there's a freedom that comes with that. And it's, and isn't step nine really in a way, you know, very much connected to step one? Isn't step one a kind of amends in a way? It's, step one is like a, an inventory and amends all wrapped up in one where we, we admit that we're powerless or we admit that we have a problem. So we're, that's the kind of inventory part of it. But it's not just the admission. We're not just taking the inventory. The implicit in that step is that now we are going to behave differently. And so that in itself is making, is creating different karma and creating an amends to ourselves and, and a living amends to the world. So uh, the idea then, what I think step nine does is it really maybe introduces us or finally kind of convinces us of the value of honesty and and of the freedom that comes when we stop protecting the ego as this is what the the difficulty of step 9 is right it's the fear of ego death if we you know put it in really sort of buddhistish terms that that you know to admit that you've done something wrong, to admit your failings to, to an individual or to do it publicly as we do in meetings uh, is the, the worst threat to the ego. And, you know, fear of ego death, you know, has been sort of shown to be, excuse me, there's fear of burping in public on Zoom. There's <clears throat> another fear of ego death. Uh, disgusting. Uh, there is a body. <laughs> and uh, the, there's actually a suggestion in, you know, the studies that show that people are more afraid of public speaking than they are of dying. <laughs> Ajahn Amaro likes to use this as an example to say people are more afraid of ego death than they are of physical death. And I, I don't know if that's exactly true, but it definitely points to something that's true. Uh, and that I th think those of us who really embrace, have embraced the recovery program have found the freedom that comes with not having to protect that anymore. So 
another way to talk about this or maybe another aspect of this and to see to frame the what's going on in step nine because step nine it seems to me pretty clearly is the culmination of the process from step four of take making an inventory and step five of sharing the inventory step six and seven of trying to change the things that you know internally start to do the work of of kind of behaving and thinking and and living differently step six and seven and then steps eight and nine are the you know the prepare preparation to make amends and then making amends it's all of a of a piece and indeed step 10 is a reiteration of that whole process right just i did i know i didn't like uh, you know people here some people might not know what this what each step is so step nine says we made direct amends to such people wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others and it's referring to the in step eight we made a list of people we harmed so step nine is making amends to those people and step set 10 says we continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong promptly admitted it so that's what i mean it's a reiteration of steps four uh, it's a reiteration of steps four and and nine but it, it, that's all of a piece, it seems to me, four through nine. So the, what, what this is, though, another way of looking at this is that, you know, step four is, is an internal process. Step five is then sharing it with one person. But when we get to steps eight and nine, now we're really moving into the social realm. And this is the than trying to heal on the social realm with family, with friends, you know, whoever we harmed, partners, ex-partners. And it's that rarely is advisable to try to make amends to ex-partners, but uh, that's another topic for another time. Um, And, uh, you know, certainly the 12 step literature points to the importance of this uh, realm and and Bill Wilson talks about how really for many of us are the alcoholism and you know it certainly is true of it all the whole range of addictions was tied up with our our painful relationships and you know for many of us that comes out of the earliest relationships with, with parents and family and trauma that happened there but but further just you know the dysfunction in our adult relationships as addicts and alcoholics um all you know all of that is not solved by stopping being an active in being active addiction uh a whole process you know not process not the right word but but a lot of work sort of needs to be done in order to bring bring ourselves back into sort of healthy healthy relationships and and this this step is key in that uh, because when we can really be honest with people they they will trust us and and we can feel safe with them and there can be intimacy um yeah so um thought I would just, um, the, 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 this, there are a couple of suttas 
the, the one sutta that mentions the amends is in the, the uh, Anguttara Nikaya, which is the, uh, oh, well, I'll put it up for you. We're going to see if you want to look. It's the Numerical Discourses of the Buddha. It's just a, a little book. It's just about uh, 1,800 pages. So you just pick it up, read it in a weekend, you know. No, not really. Uh, in any case, uh, one of the suttas, there's a collection of, of suttas that are like done numerically, like, like meaning that the, the, the suttas in the, the group of nines, which is the one I'm looking at, means that each of these suttas has like a list of nine things. So it's an odd way of collecting things. It's, it goes one through 11. So there's the book of the ones, the book of the twos, the book of the threes. And they're just like, it, it, they had strange ways of <laughs> structuring their uh, you know, teachings. But it happens that, that the amends, the one sutta that I've found uh, that mentions amends is in the book of the nines, which I think is very appropriate. Obviously, Buddhism uh, was anticipating the 12 steps. And it's a funny sutta, uh, at least uh, <laughs> in my perverse uh, sense of humor, it's funny, uh, in, in which um, a, a younger monk accuses an older monk of uh, like abusing him physically. Uh, I'll read a little bit of it to you. And uh, as with so many of this, it takes place at... Uh, at Savati, at Jeta's Grove, and not at Pindika's Park, and that was uh, where the Buddha spent a lot of his um, what are the the rain what are called the rains retreats, and this happens at the end of the rains retreat. So, and and it it involves Sariputta, who was the Buddha's senior disciple. Uh, so he's considered like he's fully enlightened. He's like up up there with the Buddha. So so he says. Um, the Venerable Sariputta approached the Blessed One, a.k.a. the Buddha, paid homage to him, sat down to one side and said, Bhante, I have completed the rains residence at Savati. I wanted to depart on a tour of the countryside. You may go, Sariputta, at your own convenience. Then the Venerable Sariputta rose from his seat, paid homage to the Blessed One, circumambulated him, keeping the right side toward him, and departed. All of that is obviously ritualistic stuff that has to do with the way, you know, you were going to treat the the Buddha and that you would, you know, only you would circum him, ambulate him and always keep him on your right side. Uh-huh. And it's interesting, too, that that Sariputta, who is this, you know, very highly realized monk, still, if he wants to do something, he goes and asks permission from the Buddha. It just shows sort of, I mean, partly it's the you know, kind of hierarchy, but it's also just showing the respect. Then, not long after the Venerable Sariputta had left, a certain bhikkhu, bhikkhu means monk, a certain bhikkhu said to the Blessed One, Bhante, the Venerable Sariputta struck me and then set out on a tour without apologizing. I always just imagine this situation. So this is like a younger monk. He comes to the Buddha and says, you know, Sariputta hit me. (laughs) And the Buddha is kind of like, uh huh, right. Because he knows, like, no, that didn't happen. But he's not going to like call him out on that. 
says, okay. He says, it says uh, the blessed one address a certain bhikkhu. Notice they don't name the bhikkhu, which sometimes when somebody like does something bad in the suttas, they don't put his name in there because it'd be like he'd go down in history as the one who did that. So it's like a way of kind of protecting his anonymity, I think. It says, go bhikkhu, in my name, call Sariputta. Tell him the teacher is calling you. Yes, Bhante. So then Sariputta comes back. Uh, he got, well, he goes and says, the teacher is calling you, come back. So, and, and, uh, so a word gets out. And so, so, uh, that something's going to happen. This is one of the things I like about this sutta. Now on that occasion, now two of the other very well-established, well-known monks, Venerable Mahamogalana and the Venerable Ananda took a key, which I don't know what that means, but they wandered from dwelling to dwelling because there's this like a monastery where they all have little cabins and they go calling forth, come forth, venerables, come forth. Now the venerable Sutta, the venerable Sariputta will roar his lion's roar in the presence of the blessed one. So basically they're saying, well, you got to see this. This is going to be good. Like, come on out. Like Sariputta is going to be pissed. Yeah. So, so Sariputta then goes through this lengthy thing that they call a lion's roar. And, Interestingly, his argument, <laughs> he's saying, I could never do that. I could never strike a monk. But his argument is that, he says, one who has not established mindfulness directed to the body might strike a fellow monk and then set out on tour without apologizing. So he says this, uh, and then then he says that same line over and over with different like similes that come after it. I'll I'll show you a couple of them. But um, the main what's interesting though is that he keeps saying that because I'm mindful of my body, I could never do that. You know, as opposed to saying. I'm so kind and uh, you know, I'm so filled with loving kindness or I'm so compassionate that I could never do that saying no. Uh, so take that for what you will. I, I don't really have an explanation for why that's his argument, but I think it, you know, it's sort of uh, points to the, uh, all I can say is it points to the import importance of mindfulness of the body, right? Cause it's like, Oh, that's, that's his argument. And so he, what he's, he's, this is something that, this is a type of simile that shows up in the suttas. And, and again, I, you might find it somewhat odd, but once you get the drift, you'll see what he's meaning, saying. He says, um, you know, one, one who has not established mindfulness of the body might strike a monk. And then he says, just as they throw pure and impure things on the earth, and then he lists a bunch of unpleasant things, yet the earth is not repelled, humiliated or disgusted. So too, I dwell with a mind like the earth, vast, exalted, and measureless, without enmity and, out it, and without ill will. So I don't know if you got that. I, I'm pretty sure when I first 
read it, I didn't get it. My mind is like the earth. It's like you can throw crap on me, but really I'm not bothered by it because I'm so vast. And my, so my mind is just so vast and spacious. It's somebody, somebody, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, that I couldn't become disturbed. So he says the same thing about water. You know, they, um, just as they wash pure and impure things in water, yet the water is not repelled. I dwell with the mind like water, vast, exalted, measureless, without enmity, without ill will. And then he goes through, you know, fire and, and then a bunch of very odd little similes. But we come to the end after this lengthy lion's roar. Um, and uh, he wraps it up by just saying, you know, one who has not established mindfulness directed the body might set out on tour without apologizing. Then that accusing Piku rose from his seat, arranged his upper robe over one shoulder, prostrated himself, prostrated himself, sorry. Hmm. That's what happens to old men. Prostrated himself with his head at the blessed one's feet and said to the blessed one, Bonte, I have committed a transgression in that I so foolishly, stupidly, and unskillfully slandered the venerable Sariputta on grounds that are untrue, baseless, and false. Bhante, may the blessed one accept my transgression, seen as a transgression for the sake of future restraint. So basically, you get it. He's like, I screwed up. I'm sorry. And here we go. The Buddha says, surely, Bhikkhu, you have committed a transgression, etc., etc., but since you see your transgression as a transgression and make amends for it in accordance with the Dharma, we accept it. For it is growth in the noble one's discipline that one sees one's transgression as a transgression, makes amends for it in accordance with the Dharma and undertakes future restraint. So here's the key, right? You see your transgression as a transgression. You see that you've made a mistake. You make amends for it. And you undertake future restraint. So that's that's where we get amends in the suttas. Well, okay. So to wrap this up, the Blessed One then addressed the Venerable Sariputta. So Buddha turns to the Sariputta. Sariputta, pardon this hollow man before his head splits into seven pieces right there. And uh, Sariputta says, I will pardon this venerable one, Bhante, if this venerable one says to me, and let the venerable one pardon me. And that's the end. So it's it's a, I mean, first of all, just the line, pardon him before his head splits into seven pieces. Pretty good line. The Buddha had some, you know, some lines. He's, he's, this guy's head's going to explode. He's like a mess. It's hard to believe the guy was a monk, but that's the thing. In those days, you know, people just become monks, but they wouldn't really be ready for it. You, you find there's a lot of, that's why there's 227 precepts. In the beginning, there weren't any precepts. But, and, but over time, every time a monk did something unskillful or stupid, <laughs> the monk made a precept about it. So what we know 
is that over the time that the Buddha was alive and teaching, there were at least 227 times that a monk did something stupid. So if you feel bad about your own, you know, mistakes in life, remember that, uh, you know, even the monks do. But it's funny that the, you know, that it, it ends with the, uh, Sarapucha says, what, the way I take that, and I think what it means is like, well, he apologized to you. He didn't apologize to me. You know, when's he going to say he's sorry to me? You know, I will pardon him if he says to me, "Let, the, let please pardon me." Okay, I will. So, I'm going to get into another sutta now. Uh, that that's uh, not about amends, but is in fact about the importance of community, and. Um, to to bring this back to the steps again, in in my suggestion that um, step nine is about healing around uh, in the social realm, and that and further we know that the twelve step and and really all recovery programs and uh, i'll say even the even the researchers i know who have done research to disprove the 12 the, the 12 steps not that they don't work but i don't know there's it's weird what they do but they they developed a program called mindfulness based relapse prevention and at, when people go through the program at the end they say and now you probably ought to go to aa cuz you need that what they call what they call social support, you know, what we call fellowship uh, or community or sangha in Buddhist terms. So it's interesting that you know all all recovery programs seem to kind of converge in that at one place, which is that we need to be together. It's hard to do it alone. So uh, this sutta uh, is the first uh, one in the book of the nines, and it's called Enlightenment, which I think is a good title for a sutta and one that you might want to know like what's that about <laughs> and what is what it's about largely uh, is the importance of community and and it again uses some very strange language uh, um, but it it starts out by uh, the Buddha asking He's got a bunch of monks, and once again, he's at, at Savati and Chetik Grove and Adapindika's Park. He, uh, he says to the, the assembled monks, uh, he, he, calls, he says, wanderers of other sects may ask you. So he's sort of saying, somebody might come along and like ask you about what we're doing. He says, they may ask you, what is the proximate cause for the development of the aids to enlightenment? If you are asked thus, how would you answer them? So it's a, it's a strange turn of phrase. Approximate cause is a necessary cause in a process for something to happen. It's approximate cause for the development of the aids to enlightenment. So it's, it's, it's not like the way to get enlightened, but it's kind of like a starting point 
okay, okay, what what are the what's the basis of this? How do I kind of get going? What what can get me on the path? And in this classic um, sort of structure of way these suttas are arranged, when the Buddha asks a question like that, the monks respond by saying, basically, well, it'd be really good if you told us the answer to that question. You know, we're here to learn from you. So, so the Buddha says, then listen and attend closely. I will speak says, if wanderers of other sects should ask you, what is the proximate cause for the development of the age to enlightenment, you should answer them as follows. Here, friends, a bhikkhu has good friends, good companions, good comrades. This is the first proximate cause for the development of the age to enlightenment. So the first you know, thing you need to get on the path is a community. I mean, there's typical redundancy we get in the suttas, good friends, good companions, good comrades. And, and when, whenever he would define something like, well, what's a good friend? It would be basically somebody who's enlightened, you know, somebody who's, you know, me, for instance. I, mean, I don't mean me. I mean, the Buddha would say me. I'm more like an okay friend, maybe not like a good friend, but okay. Again, friends, so uh, the second aid, he says, a bhikkhu is virtuous. He dwells restrained by the patimoka, which is the precepts, lives by the rules, possessed of good conduct. Having undertaken the training rules, he trains in them. So it's good friends and it's good conduct, you know, do the next right thing. Then he says, again, friends, a bhikkhu gets to hear at will, without trouble or difficulty, talk concerned with the austere life that is conducive to opening up the heart. That is, talk on fewness of desires, on contentment, on solitude. So on and on. And so the third proximate cause, then, is that you get to hear the Dharma, essentially. You know, he elaborates, it makes it kind of complicated. But essentially, he's saying, you get to hear teachings. So there's the community, there's good conduct, there's hearing teachings. And the fourth proximate cause is a bhikkhu has aroused energy for abandoning unwholesome qualities and acquiring wholesome qualities. So this is right effort, right? You're making the effort. You're not just hanging out with your, with your good friends. You know? uh, so good friends, good conduct, get to hear the teachings. And you have energy. Then he says, the bhikkhu then is wise. He possesses wisdom that discerns arising and passing away. So that means that one sees impermanence. We, that's how we, do, we usually simplify the idea of when you're talking about arising, passing away, we're talking about change. So, and that this is wisdom, right? This is like a key element to Buddhist wisdom. It's remembering that everything is in constant change. So that's the fifth. Now, he, he does something interesting here. He's, he's defined five of the proximate causes, but now he stops and he says, when a bhikkhu has good friends, 
good companions, good comrades, it can be expected that we will, he will get to hear the Dharma. It can be expected that he will uh, have energy. It can be expected that he will be wise. And so what he's saying is that th there's these five elements, but they all depend on the good friends and good, good companions, good comrades. So it's not, they're not unrelated. They're all about that. And I think this is rarely really talked about in this way in Buddhist circles, how fundamental community is, how fundamental having being, you know, having uh, like-minded friends is. So this is from the book of the nines. So there are four more things I, I wouldn't want to hold out on you. But having based oneself on these five things, the bhikkhu should develop further four things. They should abandon lust. They should develop loving kindness. They should develop mindfulness of breathing to cut off thoughts. Uh, it's just th that turn of phrase. I've never seen that in another sutta. It probably shows up somewhere, but it's not a common one. Very interesting because usually we just talk about mindfulness of breath as, you know, to be mindful. But here he states it explicitly. Mindfulness of breathing should be developed to cut off thoughts. And finally, for the ninth one, we should develop the perception of impermanence should be developed to eradicate the conceit I am. When one perceives impermanence, the perception of non-self is stabilized. One who perceives non-self eradicates the conceit I am, which is nirvana in this very life. Woohoo! We got there. We're enlightened. So there you go. Um, uh, for me, I, I just, you know, this is one of the most explicit teachings on, on, on the path that's not just saying, here's the Eightfold Path, saying that the, it's, first of all, grounding it all in community, you know, just making that the core of it all. And then, you know, that you need to have community, behave skillfully. So this is part of recovery, right? That we stop harming people. We stop kind of you know, living unethically and immorally. We need to have teachings. We need to get spiritual teachings, also part of recovery. We need to have energy. Well, it's a program of action, so you're not going to get anything done if you don't have energy. You need to have awareness of impermanence. Oh, we're always reminded this too shall pass. Right? And then we need to let go of our, you know, here he says lust, but we could say just, you know, the, the persistence of craving. I mean, that's foundational to recovery. We really, we know how that, how we get crippled by just being driven and pulled around. I think of it like sometimes pulled around by the nose, like just follow every little desire. Oh, look at that. Oh, you know, squirrel, you know, that. Um, and then develop loving kindness, of course, you know, which is again, part of recovery. Uh, mindfulness of breathing 
And then this final one, this conceit of I am, letting go of self-centeredness. Again, a very key uh, 12-step idea, a very key recovery idea that, that um, you know, our, our focus on ego and self is what really cripples us. Uh, and I guess maybe I, I, I can bring that back to, to my sort of point about step nine that a fundamental aspect of step nine is letting go of ego, of letting go of that uh, protecting ego. And when we let go of protecting ego, we are seeing that it's not who we are, you know, that who, that the way we, you know, that I, this thing that I'm defending if it can be, uh, you know, if I can let it die, <laughs> if this is ego death, and yet I'm still alive and I'm still functioning and I still have a mind and I still can, you know, feel my breath and, uh, you know, function, then that thing that I think is me is not me. And that's, you know, that's a step on the path of liberation. That's a step on, the, that's a huge step on the path of freedom. Um, and whether you call it enlightenment or spiritual awakening or just a, you know, a wise way of living, it's, it's at the heart of, of this whole path, this Buddhism path, this 12-step path and this Buddhism 12-step path. Ah, so there you go. Um, I, usually, I'm I'm usually doing this class for an hour and a half. Uh, at Spirit Rock, we they make it a little longer, but you know, sitting staring at the screen, I think an hour and a half is is about enough. So we still have a few minutes left. If anybody wants to comment or, um, and, and let me also just mention that uh, uh, while people are thinking about think saying something um, that. Uh, Spirit Rock is suffering, as we all are, but economically, Dharma centers are crippled right now. And so anything that you can donate to Spirit Rock uh, would be greatly appreciated. Uh, they've laid off at least half their staff, uh, possibly more. Um, and... Um, you know, we really need Spirit Rock. <laughs> we need Spirit Rock to survive. It's a, a critical part of the Western Buddhist world. Um, and uh, it's also how I get supported too by your donations. So just if you want to support me as well, I'll really appreciate it. So somebody wrote a question. Would you speak to shame and the ego if you have any thoughts or comments on shame? Ah, shame. Uh, it's not my one of my strong themes. Um, I th I will say that um, that I think you know shame is 
largely, I mean, I, I get, it's sort of obvious to say it's, it's something that's really, um, I want to say external in a sense that, that is we get it from the outside. It's, I don't think it's so much something the the type of shame I think you're asking about, which is the negative type of shame, because there's a type of shame that Buddhism talks about. That's like considered like something that keeps you in line sort of, uh, or keeps you on the path. But the idea of shame is that there's something inherently wrong with me or, or uh, even inherently like corrupt about me, if that's not too strange a way of defining it. And so it, the, the, you know, the, from a Buddhist view, I would just say that it, that when we see through this sense of being something solid, that I am this thing, that then something like shame doesn't have anything really to, to grab hold of. There's nothing for it to kind of, uh, you know, it can't sink its teeth into something that's not really there. Um, I don't think I can say much more than that, um, ex except that it's, you know, it is fundamentally a delusion, you know, uh, no, and I don't mean that in the negative sense, like you shouldn't have it, like there's something wrong with you, but rather that if we can see it clearly, we see that it is not real, you know, that it's, it's, it's not based in reality. It's based in this, this internalized uh, negative self view that is usually I, caused by others or by society and, and not, um, you know, not based in a, a true self um, evaluation. Um, oh, thank you, Christina, for putting in the donate uh, link there. So, um, and if you want to save this uh, chat so you can have that link, I mean, that's a pretty easy link to remember, just go to Spirit Rock slash donate. But you can save chat by um, clicking on the uh, three dot menu by the chat window. Um, how does the Buddha suggest we deal with envy of others? Um, I'm not sure if the Buddha, does the Buddha uh, suggest that we deal with the envy of others? Probably. Um, feeling a little bit like the answer man here. Uh, how does the Buddha, let's see, envy. So envy is wanting to have things that other people have. Um, well, there's the cultivation. <laughs> now I'm just pulling stuff out. There's the cultivation of mudita, which is sympathetic joy, which I would say is kind of an antidote to envy. And so mudita is taking joy in the joy of others. We can see this. This is a natural response, like when we see a little baby having fun and we smile and laugh at that. Or maybe our friend you know, has a success, right? And though, and we, and we sort of feel happy, we're happy for them or our child or our partner or some, someone we care about gets something they wanted and we're happy for them. Now, envy is when somebody gets something that we wanted, <laughs> not that they want, well, they want it too, but we wanted it too. Our friend gets the book deal, you know, our friend gets, uh, 
yeah, whatever. I think the book deal will suffice since this is Northern California and most people have a novel tucked away in their drawer somewhere. So, um, so that to when we, I mean, first of all, the way that, uh, you know, there's one thing that uh, the Buddha starts everything with, and that is mindfulness. And that is, first of all, to see it, to see that it is envy. Oh, this is envy. And then to see this is suffering. So first I have to be mindful of it. And then I have to, as I'm mindful of it, I'm seeing what it really is. So, and this is really how we work with all forms of suffering that most of the time we are suffering because we're not really seeing clearly. And when we see it clearly and we see the causal process by which that suffering arises, then there, there often is just a moment of, Oh, why am I doing that to myself? Right. That's the, that's the first sort of click that can happen around suffering, but particularly around something like this, where it can be very sticky. Like I really want that. It really hurts. It's, to see, okay, but that, where is that leading me? You know, and, and then we kind of go back to right intention. Like what I want, I want to be happy. And really I want this person to be happy. Uh, it doesn't do me any good if they aren't happy. Uh, you know, and so, um, so we see that. And then if we understand mudita, we can actually just kind of, try it out. You know, you're not necessarily going to like jump right in like, Oh, I'm so happy for you. But that we kind of go, Oh, like, what if I just kind of, you know, we just kind of put ourselves in their place. Like, Oh, they're really happy. That's, that is really good for them. You know, why not? Like, okay. Yeah. And it turns out that if you practice mudita, you're always happy <laughs> because somebody is always getting something that they want. Somebody is always happy. So if you can be happy for other people, then you don't have to generate, you don't have to get anything because you're just, you're just, uh, what do they call that? Um, when you're going behind the car and you're in the uh, slipstream, you're kind of in the slipstream on, of your, everybody else's happiness. Right. Um, I had a, you know, speaking of writing, because, you know, I, when I first started create, studying creative writing, uh, I had this great teacher at Santa Monica College, and he said, if somebody in this writing group, and it was a really great writing group, and a couple of people published novels in it while I was there, if somebody here publishes a novel, that's not a reason for you to get jealous. It's actually for you, that's a reason for you to be happy, because it turns out, you're hanging out with the, the winners, right? And if you hang out with people who are really good writers, you're going to learn to be a good writer. If you're in a group of people who never get anything published and they're not having any success, you know, I mean, you know, that's not really that great for you. You know, it's really not. So take joy. So he was basically talking about like, you know, appreciating that and finding a way to appreciate it. Right. 
that, that mudita. But I think sometimes one of the beautiful things about the Dharma, about the Buddhist teachings, is that once you just realize there is a thing, oh, there's a thing called mudita. There's a thing where you can be, you can be happy for other people. Once you realize that, you can be like, oh, why don't I do that instead? You know, it gives you an opportunity. Because if, if it never occurred to you, which it certainly never occurred to me before I learned about mudita, uh, not in a conscious way to, to, to really do that intentionally, uh, you know, then you wouldn't do it. But once you understand it, that's, that's what's beautiful about these teachings, that, it, that we have all these ways of, of intervening, Basically, yeah, or like, you know, mindfulness practice is kind of one constant intervention, right? We're, we're addicts, and we're human, and we're always heading off in those, whoop, whoop, there I go again, whoop, oh, wrong, wrong way again, oh, missed that. And the Dharma is like, no, 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 you know, don't do, try this. Oh, yeah, right, right, right. So we're in, we learn to do that for ourselves, and mindfulness kind of wakes me up. Oh, what's going on right now? Where am I getting caught right now? Oh, wait, let me look in my little reference, a Buddhist reference, like, oh, well, how do I, what's the intervention for this? Oh, uh, mindfulness. Oh, loving kindness. Oh, sympathetic joy. Oh, compassion. I mean, it's not a long list, right? It's pretty easy. Oh, everything is impermanent. Right. Okay. Th this thing won't last forever. So we have that and we, and it keeps, we keep using it as a way of intervening in our habitual negative patterns if you happen to have any habitual negative patterns which you know i keep them over in the corner i have a collection uh, my uh, my pets you know i talk about my pet peeves you know i have a, like a a zoo full of pet peeves that i keep but uh, well uh, well uh, uh, as typical uh, uh you were going to ask if i ever teach writing classes oh that's good uh no <laughs> My wife is an excellent writing teacher. I am not a good writing teacher. My approach is just write stuff, you know. Uh, so it's not very helpful. Um, well, dears, uh, just a reminder of what Kevin was reading from the suttas in case you want to remember. Good, the book of the nines in the numerical discourse of the Buddha. Beautiful. Thank you, Angela. Very good. Good job. Angela uh, does... Um, and she's putting in stuff for me there here. Uh, she handles my uh, my Tuesday at uh, 10 a.m. And, and usual Friday at 7 p.m. She uh, does the recording of the, the Zoom classes for me and helps me out. So, um, so thank you. And Christina, as, as ever, uh, can I play us a song on, on my guitar? Uh, you know, I'm not sure the union will allow me to do that, but uh, maybe if I, you don't tell anybody, I'll, t I'll see what I can do here. Excuse me. <clears throat> Take out the uh, earbuds. I don't usually do this, but Jordan, Jordan was uh, on the retreat, so. You can hear me, right? A thumbs up? Okay, because sometimes when I take the earbuds out. Um, well, ah, uh, uh, jeepers. <laughs> I wasn't prepared for this. Uh, um, uh, you know, I'd rather just uh, maybe um, 
play a little instrumental stuff instead of singing something. So I've been I've been working on this instrumental and, and I still can't play it. So um, it's always interesting when you compose something that you can't play. And it's very simple. Uh, you, but uh, don't try this at home because you'll be frustrated like me. Um, this is for those who uh, appreciate acoustic guitar and old blues. Uh, this the style of guitar playing is uh, I learned from Mississippi John Hurt. So, um, and then I've just done things with it. So. silent applause uh, all right Jordan uh, I'll blame you but um, so that's fun thank you um, so we, uh, come to the retreat you won't regret it uh, it'll be fun it is kind of fun right there's a few people out there you can nod your head there you go Anne was there Anne was on the retreat Abigail Angela I saw Chris out here before too uh, and Jordan right did you get your hair cut, Jordan, or was it like you got a different, uh, you, know, you got a whole different look, right? Or else you, maybe you're a different Jordan. You never know. People could be anybody. Um, all right. So uh, thank you for coming tonight. Uh, continue to support Spirit Rock. And um, you know, I'll try to work up some better songs, you know, next time. Blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.